Hello, film snobs. This is Film Snobs, your podcast that helps you by talking to experts in the field and movie professionals everywhere, how to be a better film snob. I'm co-founder and contributor James Owen coming to you live on tape from my palatial compound here in Southwest Missouri. Uh, folks, we're going to be doing something a little different today. Uh, when uh, One, I should point out the Steve Himes. Other co-founder is not here. He is still in beautiful London, England, sweating it out over there. Uh, but we're going to do something that we've not done in this like very small, like early stage of our um, of our return online. Um, when I envisioned uh, bringing film styles back, one of the things I talked to was uh, some folks at my favorite little art house theater in the Midwest, the Moxie Cinema, which is in downtown Springfield. MoxieCinema.com. Is it .com? Mike? Yes, it is. Okay, just check. Okay, uh, MoxieCinema.com. Uh, the Moxie is um, it kind of shows specialty films. They they show art films. They also show revivals. And one of the things we want to do is try to promote those. So they've got a very exciting um, presentation this week of a, of, of a essential art film. And to talk about that, we have not only the executive director of the Moxie Cinema, Mike Stevens, here, but we also have uh, fellow film snob fanatic moxie board member frank romines hey gentlemen good afternoon james hey good to be here james yeah so mike um you are showing this wednesday july 20th so we have to kind of time stamp this a little bit you're showing fritz langs's am i saying his name fritz langs's that's hard to like pluralize <laughs> or i guess do possessive fritz langs's m right Correct. Yeah, his his first silent, uh, his first uh, talkie, his first picture with sound, nineteen thirty one. Nineteen thirty one. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people. Well, I don't know if a lot of people, but I mean, a, a lot of people what kind of recognize Metropolis, his silent film as being like one of the great uh, sort of uh, trailblazing films of science fiction um, uh, that we still. <laughs> take inspiration from, or you notice that like certain modern films take inspiration from. Um, why is this an essential film, in your opinion, Mike Stevens or Frank Romines? We'll go with you, Mike, first. Well, you know, th this is part of a larger series that we call Essential Art House. And, you know, there's so many amazing films out there. You could do a, you know, top 100. Uh, I, I would prefer to do something like the top 1,000 films that you should see before you die. <laughs> Um, yeah. But but for us, for me anyway, when I look at this film, I think not only is it kind of a gorgeously shot film, but it also sits at a really interesting time when, when we're moving from silent era to um, to, uh, you know, movies with sound. So it's sound and image, not just not just image. Um, and it's a master director who, who made that transition. Uh, but but even more for people that aren't interested in film history at all, you could you could watch this film and say, Oh, this is where Silence of the Lambs comes from. This is Gone Girl. This is like a psychological yeah. thriller that's still, I mean, it's eight, like, it's, how old is it? It's almost, it's getting close to 100 years. You know, it's like 90 plus years. And it's, uh, and it's still very tense. And, and, and um, that, that, that's the reason why, why we're excited to play it. Yeah. Frank, you just watched it for the first time over the weekend. Is that right? I did. Yes. You want to go, you want to take a shot at kind of summarizing what the movie's about, putting you on the uh, spot? Be happy to. Uh, that, that sounds great. Uh, and welcome, everyone. Um, the um, uh, kind of perspective of a, a 
a fresh viewer. I think it's an interesting one here. I think James and Mike had seen the movie many times before, but for those of us without spoilers who were, are fairly new to this work, um, it's the story uh, of a, a city that's um, descending into chaos uh, in the 1930s. And uh, I don't know if they explicitly mentioned Berlin or not, but that's the, the setting uh, for purposes here. It was based on a true story. Um, uh, the Dusseldorf uh, killers uh, was top of mind for folks in Germany at the time. Uh, and a lot of this story was cribbed from that real life event. Um, and what we had uh, is kind of the backdrop for the, the story was um, a series of child uh, murders, uh, which is uh, horrifying in its own right, uh, whereby um, the killer was at, at large uh, and the, the authorities, uh, such as they are, were trying to, to apprehend the, the murderer slash serial killer. Um, we do see in the early scenes uh, children ominously playing and uh, singing a um, very adult, uh, very uh, scary version of Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Moe uh, <laughs> with the, uh, the um, subtext of the murderer on the loose. Uh, and uh, right away, uh, frankly, are, are put into the, the action whereby a child is abducted and uh, killed mercifully off screen uh, that sets uh, some of the propulsive action and mm -hmm. kind of the, the further straw that breaks the camel's back into action. We do have, um, uh, and it's not a spoiler to say, a very good visibility in who the killer is from early on in the film. But right. the, the movie, um, for the most part, is a police procedural in trying to apprehend uh, the murderer. And it kind of was a very early, if not the earliest, example of that done on a, a scale that um, was just breathtaking for 1931. Um, and you also have kind of uh, a more psychological uh, examination of a city that's really losing its mind. Uh, and as this continues to go on and on and on without resolution, the, um, the reactions of folks on the street of the criminal underworld element, uh, which is a very uh, significant component of this story that we'll get into, I'm sure, um, is examined at length and contrasted with the, the local government and authorities that are trying to apprehend the, the murderer. And then have a nice view and a, uh, an interesting uh, ending that uh, kind of brings that to a head from the criminal's perspective. So it's um, uh, not soup to, to nuts. It's a, a great examination of a lot of different film genres that we see still today. Uh, and as a first time viewer, I was just blown away. Uh, James, you, you mentioned that it's still compelling uh, with both the sense of scale and also the sophistication on a lot of issues, both political and, and otherwise, um, there are mental health issues uh, at, at play that are touched on, particularly in the resolution of, of this film that have a very modern sensibility. Uh, I think it is a much, it, it's easy to say a film's decades ahead of its time, but this truly does stand up today in a way that many, many films from the 60s, 70s and, and later do not. That's a, a long explanation for kind of uh, what we're talking about here today. I was going to say, somebody took notes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's well done, Frank. Yeah, way to go, Frank. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, like, and I, you know, I always uh, feel remiss not to just even talk about, like, you are this, this serial killer film, police procedural film. But one of the first, like, glimpses we see of Peter Lorre as like not like kind of the central character but not like a real prominent character in the movie but he became such a good creep 
like you think about him in Casablanca or the Maltese Falcon. Uh, he was just one of these guys who just was like such a weirdly compelling screen performance. And what's amazing to me in watching the movie again is I was reading that he was just 26 when he was in this movie. He looks so shot out for a 26 year old. <laughs> a hard 26. Yeah. It's, it's a hard 26. <laughs> Berlin was rough. Yeah. On yeah. Laurie. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, you know, the, you, you both kind of alluded to this, like, this is like a, this, you know, not only just a pivotal time in, in film, because Fritz Lang had done silent films, and ended up having a pretty decent career in, in talking films, especially in the States. But this was shot in Germany, where there was a lot of, you know, forbearing, I guess, about Nazism, because Nazism was like already on the rise. I mean, you, you get a sense of that watching this, don't you? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit before we started. And and I, I know that Roger Ebert in a big review talked about that, that like it wasn't explicit because there were censors at the time. Um, but but there did seem Frank. to be uh, that Lang really and, and and Frank definitely talked about this, that he, uh, this foreboding sense of, of doom coming and also the, the strange combination of the underworld and the police state kind of looking very similar. Like, you know, they both had similar structures in the movie and, and echoed each other. And they, they actually partnered to find out, to track down the bad guy that Peter Laurie, the, the child murderer. Um, and it asks a lot of questions, a lot of uh, interesting questions about, about, you know, which is worse, these, these two kind of police, the police state and the, and the criminal underground or, or this child murderer. Um, so, yeah, very smart, sophisticated, and still uh, like, like my favorite movies do this, that, that do all the smart, sophisticated, and yet anybody can watch them and, and not have to, you know, you don't have to know all this backstory to right. still find it compelling. I mean, Peter Laurie on screen, he's not on screen for a ton of time for the movie, but it, indelible. I mean, it's just, you, you see his face immediately. He's just charismatic on screen and not in a great way, right? Super creepy. Oh. But yeah, I mean, yeah, because yeah, you do see, I mean, you see like a, a thing I really like in movies, like so much portrayal of him through shadows. Um, you see him like kind of, you know, kind of sneaking up on little girls and that sort of thing. And you don't see him. You just see his composite. Like you don't well, need and to James, see him. You, you hear the whistling, uh, yeah. the, the tune that is just so ominous by the end that's otherwise right. just peppy um, uh, little whistle. Uh, and, and that... I think kind of reminder is a reminder to folks in the early days of sound pictures was just such an amazing use. He uses, uh, Lang uses sound here better than most modern filmmakers do. Yeah. Um, that that can portray doom and, and suspense and danger so effectively is one of the real highlights of the film. Couldn't agree more. I think it's so impressive to have such a novel technology used so well. I mean, you look at like uh, what Quentin Tarantino did with with Wheeler's Game or, or Rick Springfield tune Jesse's Girl and, and Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights and how those kind of changed oh. those songs. I feel like that because it's from the, the whistling is from like, a, I forget which opera. It's a Hall of the Mountain King or something like that. But no, it really like you hear it now and it says something completely different to you than it, than it would have if you hadn't seen the movie. Um, uh, and also the first time I, that I, under, I think the first time a leitmotif was ever used, like that kind of operatic 
um, technique of saying like this identifies a character or a, or a mood. Um, and so by the end of the movie, yeah, you don't need to see him. You just need to hear the whistle and you know, he's there. Right. Yeah. Um, and my, my research is super failing me and trying to find this whistling. <laughs> it's, well, say for listeners, it's something folks would recognize, uh, yeah. whatever its source. And what, one of the yeah. funny bits of trivia that I, I did in prepping for this was, um, you know, Peter Laurie apparently couldn't whistle very well. And so the whistle in the movie, uh, if, if, you know, what I read is to be believed is, is Fritz Lang doing that whistling himself. Oh, really? Oh, oh hold on. Seems like the kind of thing somebody ought to be credited for, particularly given its yeah. efficacy in this this film. Right. Well, while he's while he's looking at it, I feel like this you you alluded to this, James, but one of the interesting things was just how beautifully shot and kind of the shadows and the darkness and really uh, and the, the guy who shot that, the cinematographer, also did Nosferatu, Murnau's classic film. Very oh, different films, really? but like something I didn't know until I started doing some research for this. And Mike, I think that's a really nice thing to note because it feels like a, a lived-in world um, and not in a you know, superficial, we're going to have three different settings or, or backdrops. And we're going to, this felt like a city to me. Uh, we were in back rooms, we were in bars, we were on the street, uh, we were in police headquarters, and you had folks talking on the phone from different settings, uh, in addition to just the, the locations where the abductions happened and then the, the final resolution in a very... Uh, unforgettable scene as well. It, it felt like you got to see Berlin. Uh, and, I've, and I was just really impressed with how much economy was, was realized in building that world without ever even having any exposition about it. It just, that's where everybody was. Uh, and that's what we saw. In, in the Hall of the Mountain King is the name of the, the Hall of the Mountain King. Thing. Okay. Thank so, you. So glad I found that because I would have been thinking about it the rest of this podcast. But yeah, I mean, the locations are, I mean, obviously somebody who has a very fine visual sense, I mean, Lang, obviously like, you know, when, when you look at Metropolis, like he knew how to film, you know, a mis mise-en-scene, you know, uh -huh, good. And uh, <laughs> is there a film snob like checklist where we can use oh, yeah. mise-en-scene, check. Oh, yeah, yeah. Film snob, bingo. I, I want to, yeah, I want to make sure I sound as completely pretentious as possible. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, but yeah, it is a technical marvel, but I, I think, you know, like it also works because it does play on this like very strong sense of like how people operate and behave. And, and Frank and I were talking about this before you came on Mike about how, like the, how some of the issues about people react to violence with violence or act, you know, kind of acting, you know, you know, dealing with irrationality with irrationality is something that was obviously very pertinent then, but feels pertinent now. As far as like how they would like, you know, they were wanting just to, you know, blindly go after this guy. Um, and I think there was a nice yeah. contrast, James, between the, the mob who um, uh, we'll say takes an interest in um, resolving the situation for reasons that maybe are slightly less pure uh, than the authority yeah. interest in catching the bad guy. Uh, the, um, the contrast, um, both the similarities and the differences, uh, certainly in motives, I, I felt like was really at the heart of this. And it still speaks to kind of what drives 
um, faith in institutions today. Uh, it, it feels like a modern story. Uh, and I, I really do also like the, again, without spoilers, um, the nod to um, mental health awareness uh, that is top of mind. And I think a, a, a modern issue that was addressed here uh, in a way that um, different reviews characterize um, maybe more than I would as, as a positive or a, a, um, a, a situation where folks are, are relatable. I, I didn't find it um, to be that, but I was glad it was addressed and I thought it was a, a real nice effort to bring some extra dimension to a significant character. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, the, you talk about the motives of all the people involved. I mean, like, I mean, the, the police are largely motivated. I mean, they could want to catch this guy, but they are having political pressure put on them. Uh, the criminals just don't like the police being more interested <laughs> right. in the street. So they're like, well, we got to do something about this. We can't we can't commit any of our regular crimes. <laughs> um, and so they feel like they have to take the matter into their own hands. Um, and then, you know, you could, I mean, and what is really striking to me is because it is such a horrendous subject, of, you know, like, especially like anything about like a 90 some odd year movie talking about a child murderer, which I mean, is hard to even like process now after we've been so desensitized by violence, but that's still like such a shocking thing. Uh, and it also not asking you to sympathize with him because he does become the subject of this intense you know, this, in, this intense hunt and this intense uh, reaction to him, but just saying like, I can't, I can't control myself. You people absolutely could. And yet you choose not to. Yeah. That, that final scene, or I guess it wasn't the final scene, but the, the resolution scene, we'll call it, um, mm. calls that out maybe a little bit explicitly, but I, I felt like was such a, a, a touch point for understanding uh, of one another in a time that we all live in where understanding is, is difficult with folks that we disagree about uh, uh, things with. It's, it was a, a call to action uh, in my mind. And then the mother, uh, that, that final line just breaks my heart. Um, but I think, um, and Lang said later in life, uh, that um, uh, that was why he did the movie, was, was that last line of dialogue. Oh, really? Yeah, and, and one of the interesting things about Lang, and I've, I've done some digging uh, in the last few days, um, just on a superficial level, is that he, he was a storyteller, uh, and there were uh, just, we should all be candid and upfront, um, different versions of, of motivating events in his life uh, that um, were told over, uh, over time, we'll say. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was adamant at the end that that was why he did the movie in the first place. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that I saw that contradicted anywhere, even though there are, um, uh, Lang lived an interesting life. We'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, and um, uh, James, I think maybe it might make sense to talk a little bit about uh, kind of what was going on in Germany uh, back in the 30s and around the time this, this film was, was made, the, the impact it had on Lang personally and why it, uh, or how it might have shown up in the film. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, you do some reading, you, you see, I mean, this is, I mean, clearly Germany was in such a, this was 31, uh, Hitler was around, Nazism was rising, you know, Germany was very much socked, you know, after the Treaty of Versailles with uh, economic sanctions, there was a lot of desperation in that country, there was a lot of poverty in that country, there was a lot of 
frustration <laughs> with how everything went. Um, and then you started seeing someone who was being able to take charge, uh, quote unquote, <laughs> and kind of frame their frustration in a way that might have, uh, you know, might, you know, might, uh, you know, might be easy to, to dismiss now as being fanatical and being evil. But certainly you wonder if that like occurred to a lot of those people when it was happening. I think there was a discussion and, and ultimately he did change the title according to some sources to um, better please the censors. Uh, and as Mike alluded to earlier, I think Lang's next film was banned in Germany. Um, the um, uh, kind of tightrope he had to walk here was let's, let's tell a story that actually tells what's going on and depicts what's going on in a country that was dealing with all kinds of issues uh, and um, and still have it pass muster with the, the authorities who had to, to bless it to get it out into the marketplace and be seen. Uh, so it, it was a fascinating um, kind of moment in history in that country. Uh, and his wife, uh, who was, uh, I believe, uh, received the writing credit for this, or at least the co-writing credit for this, and his partner in putting films together during that period, later became a party member uh, of the Nazi party. Oh, wow. Uh, and um, I don't know that she left when he left uh, Germany a few years later. Because there's a lot of contradicting stories about like how he left. Like he has like kind of a very, I think I read somewhere he has like a very like kind of, you know, very daring escape. <laughs> Midnight uh, but train. Yeah, yeah, Midnight Train. And there's there's some thought that maybe it wasn't quite as um, exciting as that. But still, somebody who was making movies that was kind of critical of the political culture at the time of a culture that wasn't exactly thrilled with criticism. <laughs> So you, you have to say like it was pretty he was pretty daring in addition to being like technically, you know, marvelous director and, and telling this really compelling, like kind of ahead of its time story. He was he was sticking his neck out. Oh, yeah. I, th I think not only politically, but like to back up to your earlier point about how, how kind of unappetizing the child murder is, is, is kind of or child murder is, is a topic. I mean, that's not really the topic of the movie, but like that's right. the that's kind of the driver of, of all the action. And I, I, I think of modern serial killer. I mean, we sure have plenty of serial killer movies out there and some gory stuff that, you know, I'm not a fan of, but like, you don't see a lot of child murder films, <laughs> right? Like oh. it was a very bold decision just kind of from a plot standpoint, let alone like, you know, commenting on, on his political climate surrounding him and, and, and later having to flee along. And Peter Laurie fled as well, correct? Yeah. He did. Uh, one thing I would say for, for any viewers who are interested in seeing this at, the, this at the Moxie this week or catching up with it in another way, we'd prefer you come see it on the big screen as it was intended yes. to be uh, this week, is that the, the murders do, the violence does happen on off screen. Um, so it's one mercy, uh, if nothing else. That that's, um, it's, it's terrible enough, but they did kind of draw the line there in terms of um, dealing with this still challenging source material. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it kind of goes to the idea, like Mike talking about graphic violence, which has never really been like a turnoff for me. But certainly, I think it does when you kind of suggest things you don't show as much. That certainly makes for a better horror film to a certain degree because it's all in your head. Well, James, um, we talked about that with Reservoir Dogs and yeah. Tarantino. Um, it, yeah. it, it's so much more powerful when you don't see it, and you, your imagination can go so wild um, just portraying. <laughs> something that's so much worse than could ever show up on screen. 
Yeah. Yeah. The, the ear cutting scene. And uh, yeah, I think the same way with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you see very few deaths in that movie. And everyone talks about how gory and graphic it is, but it's really is not that bad compared to a lot of other films that spawned. Um, but yeah. And again, you know, I mean, this is kind of, yeah, when you think about Germany, I mean, we, you know, there were like kind of political, there was kind of censors who were looking at like, you know, content that way. But this is still like very early before like some filmmakers did get curbed. I mean, I, I think rightfully so, a lot of films from the 30s and 40s and 50s do feel sanitized a bit because they weren't able to ta- uh, tackle things that maybe the filmmaker wanted to. That's a little different than a German film at this period of time, but still. You know, that kind of pre-1933, pre-Hays Code stuff. You get some really gnarly stuff in that period of culture. Like when film was just starting before everyone said, we got to sanitize this a bit. Well, yeah, and you, before people realized they needed to make rules. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> or thought they did, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is It is one of those things where it's like you just you almost see like a, like people really trying to talk about things in a way that's it's not necessarily gratuitous but just it 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 it, you know i think there was like and i think you know i also kind of go back when i watched this again i thought about how you've how i've read more about how disappointed some people were how hollywood did not respond to the nazism threat through through film like louis b mayer i mean even though like and let's let's be honest a lot of jewish studio executives just felt like it was kind of a little like it might draw attention to their religion might draw attention to things that might be unpleasant for the audience and a lot of people said like they had this power to bring attention to this and chose not to in that period of time um it's interesting i don't know if it would have made a difference if they had or not um but i certainly watch a movie like this and the signs were there Right, And I think one interesting element that we haven't touched explicitly on, James, related to that is that um, according to reported um, sources, uh, Lang was offered the head of the German uh, cinema Mm. program uh, and turned it down. And and according to at least one version of events, that's why Lang left Germany on the midnight train. Um, uh, But ultimately, Goebbels had offered that to him, thinking that he could take uh, a critic of the existing regime in Germany and take him over to his side. Um, I think that stand um, is one that, you know, to the extent it's true, deserves a lot of credit and um, that Lang deserves credit for that, that um, he wasn't willing to stand for that. I kind of getting back into the subject matter of the film a little bit. How did, how did both of you feel like the everyday person and we'll kind of separate the, the cops and the criminals camps, but just the folks in the bars and the folks, uh, in the the room smoking and playing cards, how how did you feel they were depicted uh, in this film, Mike? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I mean back to the Ebert. Uh, I mean I think his he was talking about the grotesque faces. Like everybody who's mm-hmm. there seems kind of monstrous, and which is why Ebert was talking about um, kind of why he he, he went on about about how Lang was really speaking about his larger dissatisfaction with Germany at the time and the kind of rise of his country, what, what was happening. Um, and, and it was portrayed by those everyday characters. It didn't seem like there was a single kind of, even the kids in the playground didn't look nice, you know, like. No, no. 
Yeah, he was talking about like, yeah, like kind of fat fingers and like just kind of, you know, uh, this kind of the rottenness around them. I mean, I think, you know, I think it is kind of, I mean, there is like a little, and I, of course, I have to take this back to this whole lawyer thing, right? I mean, think about the, you think about like how <laughs> the scene at the end where, you know, he was kind of James, James yeah. if I could stop you there, just are we going to be spoiling the ending? We want to give folks a, a heads oh, up. Oh, Frank, for a 91 year old movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, we just want to be sensitive. And okay, anybody, that's fair. That's um, fair. Okay. Tell them what Dano's did. Any, anyone that wants to see this, for example, on Wednesday, um, you might want to pause it. Uh, come watch it at the Moxie and then return back to the rest of the podcast right. on out. And I won't tell I you what happened you, to Frank. the Wizard of Oz when it all turns out to be a dream. <laughs> or was it? No. Um, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, there was this whole thing about, like, due process versus... Like he was literally wanting to be handed over to the authorities because he just thought like that would at least be a fair shake. And they were laughing like this maniacal cackling. Uh, the contrast and, between gosh, who the monster was in that moment was horrifying. Yeah. Um, so ugly. So yeah. ugly. Um, yeah. Pretty bleak portrayal of, I mean, it's a pretty bleak portrait of a, of a, of a country at that time. Yeah. It is. I, I thought it was extremely powerful to, to see and to have that spotlight turned around. And, you know, the, the arguments that they were making that these were unforgivable crimes were true. I mean, it's, it's not it's not OK on any level. But but the lack of understanding of kind of why he might have done that in a sense of justice that was lacking beyond just mob rule uh, was yeah. was very compelling. And I read several reviews that suggested that um, the authorities were kind of portrayed as, um, uh, say, the police department was portrayed as um, uh, ineffectual. And I don't know that I agree with that read. I, I see where that's coming from. Um, but when he stepped in and put his hand on his shoulder, and you knew from that point forward that justice would be done and that this would be handled the way, you know, the system of laws that we have in, in modern society should handle crimes of this nature, and that may result in death. And we're not going to talk about uh, appropriateness of penalties on this podcast but right. the, the the fact that he would have a trial and he would have his day in court and uh, make the argument that he just deserved to be in a hospital rather than a prison um to to get help that he desperately needed that he acknowledged that he needed um was, was a, i thought a very sensitive portrayal of a very difficult topic uh, that i've seen done much worse oh <laughs> yeah uh, for the last 30 years yeah I mean, done much worse, in my opinion, the black phone, which just came out also about a child murderer, uh, which is absurd to me in comparison to this movie. <laughs> I don't I know. Haven't seen it. That's, that got well reviewed. I haven't seen it yet. I yeah, it, it did. get It did get good reviews. And I, I generally like the director, Scott Derrickson. I did not. And, and that could be a whole other podcast about it. But I uh, I, I found it. I found it to be absurd. Um, I, I'll always just say this. It's amazing. It's an amazing coincidence that a kid with psychic abilities who can talk to, to, to the dead is happens to be the victim of a kidnapping. It's very amazing how that worked. <laughs> right place, right place. Sounds like, a, sounds like an effective uh, screenwriting device anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I've got, a, I've got a whole set of thoughts about it. But I, I do think. I mean, you think about him being kind of timeless. I think it's. I think even like with our modern sensibilities, like we can't do it as well as that movie did. Um. 
So, Mike, this is play- okay. So, I want to make sure that we're this is playing on July 20th. That's a Wednesday, seven o'clock. The Moxie, for those of you listening in that are in Springfield, I hope that's a lot of you. That is uh, downtown. Uh, that's just off Campbell, um, where it's going one way north. And, um, and it's been a while since I've lived in, uh, lived in Springfield. What's the street that goes in front of it? <laughs> uh, McDaniel. So it's a Campbell McDaniel. McDaniel, 305 South Campbell. Yeah. And the, yeah. you park in the Regal uh, or the College Station parking lot. Ah, the big multiplex next door. <laughs> That's right. For anyone who hasn't yet visited the Moxie, welcome. Uh, and we welcome you uh, to do so in the future. And that parking garage that is attached to the, the theater um, uh, building is covered parking for free. Uh, there's yeah. no better parking in town uh, at any cinema uh, in Springfield. That's right, Frank. Uh, now, you are, if you are a member of the Moxie Cinema, you get to see this for free, right? Yeah, all the all of our classic films are free for members. So you know, members uh, start as low as fifty dollars for students, and uh, we play upwards of fifty plus classic screenings, including these uh, monthly essential art house titles like uh, M this coming Wednesday. And how do you become a member of, of the Moxie, Mike? Online, moxiecinema.com. You can go there and click on the member page or the support us. I think it's moxiecinema.com backslash support is the easy way to get there. Uh, And, you know, once you sign up, you just let us know you're a member within within, you know, two hours. You can if you if you sign up before the screening, we'll we'll have you in the system. We'll take a little bit longer to get you your pass, but you can get into that movie for free. And you are, and I, I got to like cram in a bunch of promotional stuff for you, Mike, while we have you here, you are kind of doing a drive of sorts this month that if you became a member, there's also going to be some added opportunity, maybe some added incentive other than just getting to see M this month. Well, yeah, you get, you get uh, so July fundraiser, we're trying to raise $30,000 to kind of to make up for some pandemic related losses. And um, our board, our volunteer board, is uh, putting has gotten us halfway there already. So we have fifteen thousand dollar matching challenge, uh, and all new members their donation gets doubled. So if you give a hundred dollars to become a member, one of our board members gives a hundred as well and gets us to that thirty thousand dollar goal sooner. That's yeah. through July thirty first. July thirty first, and as we sit here, that's about half the month left that you have an opportunity to help that drive that you're doing right now. Um, you know, I know we're talking about M. I know that was like the focus of this and we've had a good chance to talk about that. But as far as like challenges right now, it seems to me like one of the challenges that, that is out there for all theaters is it's just is there is there kind of a slowdown of of products that you can show? Has that was that affected by the pandemic, like film production that you might be seeing now that you just don't have as many films that are available to show? Is that like a problem that you've, you're facing right now? Yeah, I think the problem comes from, I mean, with only two screens, we don't have as much of an issue of filling our screens, but the challenge is really that other theaters are having a problem. So if there's a a big art house movie title, everybody in town might be interested in screening it because there's only so many screens you can put Thor on, Uh, you know, have it on six screens and then they're like, oh, well, we might as well, you know, throw this little arty title onto the the small theater, you know, Uh, so that's where I've seen some challenges and also just the fact that less film production slowdown and more 
how are they going to release stuff? How are film distributors mm. going to release stuff? Are they going to go streaming right away? Are they going to VOD day and date? Are they going to give us a theatrical window? The old school, well, not the old school, not 90 days, but you know, a week, oh. two weeks. I mean, <laughs> we're seeing everything all over the map. There's a large amount of experimentation going on in the theatrical world of figuring out how to, you know, not not from, we're, we're doing a lot of experimenting on what works, but the distributors, sure. people we don't have control over when we get movies and, and how necessarily they're doing a lot of experimenting to see what works for them. But there's yeah. plenty of great movies out there. I mean, there is a, a large number of really great movies and yeah. just tracking, tracking them down, you know. Right. Um, yeah, I because I, I, I know that you've got, I mean, you've got some, like, I think you've got like three movies that are playing right now that I liked. That, I mean, well, I, I liked Official Competition. I liked Fan of the Open. I mean, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, I think might not have been made for a middle-aged white guy like myself. <laughs> I, I do not think you are the target audience for that. No, that's kind of a mom core movie, you know, uh, but that seems to be movies that are kind of popular for you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Miss Miss Harris. Actually, I just looked at the weekend numbers. It has done fantastic. It did well. We had a Saturday screening with fifty plus people, which for us these days wow. is uh, that's that's really great. And a large part of that is that we are the only people. You know, like we're playing it. I think the Regal was going to play it. I haven't checked, but you know, right. we're doing great with it. Which is you know, and that's our core audience. Which yeah, is one man's mom core is another man's uh, you know core audience. I guess it's uh, you know you know 50 plus people that want to come see a movie with some heart and and they learn a little something about yeah. that might be a kinder way to put it james <laughs> no i listen i think it was interesting to me like i wrote a whole review about this last week yeah. about how like that dress and about her quest for that dress kind of represented a post-war european mentality of like what is the working class middle class going to look like in europe is it, you know, is it something that like the elitists are going to be able to keep people away from things like Christian Dior? I mean, there's a lot of like juicy stuff in that. I thought. Good. But it was, but it is also more like, oh, look, Leslie Manville's very excited about this dress. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Even got a Hitchcock zoom when she first saw it. You know what the Hitchcock zoom is? Oh, it came in like. Yeah. The dolly. The dolly. Right, right. Spielberg yeah. used it in Jaws too, right? It's like, yes. Uh, the scene with Roy Scheider when he sees the kid out, uh, like yeah. being attacked. And I think they you use dolly it in and you zoom out at the same time. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. And I think John Landis used it in a thriller video that he directed for Michael Jackson. You see it in there. It's yeah. anytime you want to like say, like, I've got a lot of things going on inside and I don't know how to control this. And <laughs> that's that's the cinema shortcut for that yeah 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 so folks you go watch mrs harris goes to paris look for the dolly zoom um but yeah i'm really glad that that's doing well for you guys that's great yeah, as am i <laughs> you know what yeah. we, this is kind of speaking of experimentation i just saw i don't know if you've seen the hindi language film rrr it's streaming yeah. on netflix right now and i saw it this weekend um I, I streamed it here at the theater just because I, I thought it should be seen big uh, with with some board members actually. Oh, okay. and, uh, and we booked it for Friday because it is crazy. Oh, good. It I because so people have been saying like you need to watch this, and I just haven't had a chance because it's like a three hour long. It's a three hour movie, and it is so fun. And it really like oh. my favorite tweet about it is like twenty nine Marvel movies have not come up with a more 
interesting set piece action piece than this and and the piece that they're talking about is is true i mean and there's three of them wow. that i'm like i watch these set pieces i'm like oh my god <laughs> i mean they're over the top yeah I mean, slightly can't be fun 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 you're playing that on friday at the moxie starting friday yeah we're gonna play it one <sighs> week we're gonna we're gonna I, have marcel the shell starting later yeah. like uh, on the 29th so we'll have to clear it but um but excited i just confirmed that this morning i took some doing i'm uh, i'm in town till saturday i might have to go see that friday night that's uh, friday night it's a banger yeah that might yeah that might be a hot time in the city <laughs> no that's cool okay well we got that we got that uh programming note as well um but as you wait our uh r as you wait i think you're also getting the two sides of the blade on friday is that still happening or no yes that's still happening. Both sides of very different flavor but uh but yeah but you, you really different. loved it right i, I, I thought it was that. great yeah i thought it was great um it is one of those movies that you keep thinking like something awful is going to happen because of all the music cues and yeah. everything it's like oh no it's just generally like the the terribleness of this relationship is just going to come to a head <laughs> um so it's great you like that sort of thing if you like if you go for the claire denis kind of like she's rough like it's her movies are fantastic but they're never like an easy sit they're never an easy sit this is not an easy sit but well worth watching i i dug it a lot I, julia Pinoche, i'm just constantly i'm constantly stunned by her and yeah I just, how amazing i was thinking about her and also the um there was a french well, Javier Bardem has a Spanish language film coming out, but there was a French male actor that was, I forget who it was. Maybe it was just watching official competition, but like as these actors that come to Hollywood, these, uh, you know, from abroad, um, mm. they, they are going back to their native countries. And, I, and partly I, I imagine it has to do with ti like titles that are available to them as they age, right. you know, like that there's still great titles for them and, and roles for them. Mm. Um, that maybe in Hollywood they're like they've moved on. Okay, we've had our Bardem moment. Yeah. We've had our Penelope Cruz. Yeah, uh, but in Spain they're still getting them. Or in France for Benoche. Or I mean, she yeah. you know she got. I just didn't know this, but she got offered Jurassic Park. I don't know which role, but she said she was. She's been offered Spielberg uh, roles. And by the Lord, was it been the Lord Lauren part maybe? I, I I need to read the article, but I, was, I don't I was know. Curious. That's interesting. She or maybe there was a sequel where Julianne Moore was in it. I mean, that that makes that sense. would that make sense. sense. I feel sense. like that that would be a little closer parallel than yeah. Because like Julia Binoche is fifty eight, yeah. Banderas is sixty one, which I had to look up after I saw official competition. He looks great. Uh, like he looks great for a twenty year old, let alone sixty one. <laughs> Antonio Banderas. Yeah. 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 He it's was like, so fun in that. He's really great in that movie. <laughs> and that ending, like I was not really with the movie until the ending. And I won't spoil any of that. That ending is pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty incredible. Um, so you should go see that, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's my take. We have M, we have RRR. We've got a big week for like letters at the Moxie. RRR, <laughs> M. Yeah, you uh, yeah, both sides of the blade. We got B going on there. Yeah, it's great. Um, 
Well, guys, I think uh, I think I've, we've we probably uh, I've probably we know you all have jobs to do, and so um, I want to thank you all for coming on talking about M. Yeah, Mike, thanks for coming on to promote your your your, your organization. <laughs> oh, thanks for the opportunity. It's always fun yeah. to talk about movies, and also thanks for letting me plug away. Yeah, yeah, and Frank, you're the man. Thank. You. I'm glad. I think we're gonna go try to catch this movie Wednesday night. That sounds yeah. great. If, if we can. So yeah, we'll be I there. I think I'll see you there. Yeah. Don't mob us. If you see us, like, it's going to be like a, I know it's going to be like a real celebrity sighting, but please we respect <laughs> yeah. our privacy. Keep all dreaming. Right. <laughs> Keep dreaming. <laughs> and I just want to thank all of you on behalf of film snobs. If you like what you hear, subscribe to this on all major platforms, go leave a review and share this on your social media on behalf of film snobs. I want to thank you all. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Have a good week folks. <laughs>